This is a Suno India production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android app. Download it now from Google Play Store. Hello listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Becoming Modern: Healthcare and History in India. I am Kiran Kumbhar, the host of this show, and this is our third episode. Gandhi or the drug vendor Medical practitioners of various classes derive their supply of medicine from the bazaar vendor. This latter is commonly known by the name Gandhi, literally a seller of odoriferous substances. He is generally a Gujarati baniya or a bohora. His drugs consists of all kinds of products, minerals, vegetables and animal, fresh or cold, good or bad, and mixed with various substances. they are exposed for sale the men of real learning only whether vaidyas or hakims are able to recognize the drugs and can discriminate between genuine and counterfeit adulterated and pure the native vendor of drugs gandhi sometimes becomes a practitioner he never visits the patients at their houses but on a statement of symptoms and at times feeling the pulse and looking at the urine he deals out a small price the ingredients of a compound decoction or powder with some pills prepared by himself to patients who visit his shop the poor of the population resort to him and for ordinary complaints of the season such as colds fevers and diarrhea his medication answers their purposes nature doing majority of the cure a bombay doctor sakharam arjun described this scene in an article he wrote in 1883 if you imagine yourself as a resident of the city of bombay in the late 1800s these gandhis the word from which the surname gandhi is most probably derived would be among the many different types of medical practitioners you would have encountered on the streets and bazaars of this vibrant metropolis in his article Sakaram Arjun painted a vivid picture of the city's practitioners. There were Gandhis and Hakims and Vaidyas. There were doctors of quote-unquote European medicine, both qualified and unqualified. Then there were itinerant drug vendors, some of whom claimed their ancestry in Peshwa era physicians, others coming in from northern India. Then there were pile curers from Madras and Travancore. and bone setters from the parsi community today we will discuss like in the previous episode how historians of healthcare have ventured beyond the overwhelming dominance of the stories and perspectives of just doctors as sakaram arjun's article makes obvious Biomedical doctors were only one community among several which made up the healing professions in different parts of India in the past and indeed even today. Besides and very importantly healthcare practitioners are only one part of the history of healthcare. 
the other far greater part is constituted by patients and communities themselves. As I mentioned in our previous episode, I asked several historians a question that could help us better understand the healthcare perspectives and experiences of ordinary people in the past, of folks like our parents and grandparents and their parents and grandparents. The question was as follows. Imagine a person born somewhere on the Indian subcontinent in the year 1810, who lived until 1890. What changes would such a person have seen throughout their life in terms of how people in general thought about health and illness and how they accessed medical care? Additionally, how different were people's experiences depending upon gender, caste, religion, urban rural residence and geographic location? Historian David Arnold, who is Emeritus Professor at University of Warwick in the UK, had this to say. First of all, such a person wouldn't have lasted that long. I mean, mortality rates and life expectation in India were so low that it's very unlikely that your hypothetical person would have existed from the 1800s through to the early 1900s. just not very likely. Some bit, but very, very few. So that actually is quite an important consideration, that there is actually very little improvement in uh, life expectation over the course of the 19th century, particularly because of the impact of famines, but also the epidemics which partly accompanied those famines. So we're talking about a situation at one level which doesn't get better. It might even get worse in certain kinds of ways, particularly with the plague pandemic, with influenza in 1918-19 and so on. So your, your hypothetical person, we're very lucky to have survived that long. But just to take your question a bit more seriously, uh, it does, as you say, depend on which person we're talking about in which circumstance. I think for somebody living in the countryside, um, in a relatively remote village, the changes would not have been all that marked. But they might have been exposed to vaccination campaigns, uh, perhaps by itinerant vaccinators coming to the village. They might have been exposed to some measure of health propaganda by people turning up in the village with magic lantern slides. They might have received a certain measure of basic health access. But much of the health in the countryside remained outside the Western biomedical sphere. A lot of it remained with local practitioners, people who had or claimed to have some kind of basic medical knowledge, people who had some kind of adherence to the indigenous medical systems. However, if you turn to the cities, then the picture is really rather different, and even to many of the smaller towns. People there would have had access to dispensaries that they could go to um, and pick up medicines or have basic operations performed. They might have had access to uh, cataract surgeons who performed enormous number of cataract operations in the 19th century. They might have had access to hospitals, although the whole question of hospitalization remained a fairly tense one for much of the 19th century as to whether hospitals were actually a good thing or whether they actually subjected Indians to 
kinds of coercion to disregard for their religious and caste identities and so on. So hospitals were were problematic, but I think increasingly you see um, Indians being willing to take up um, hospital beds and to see them as a way of getting better and getting better attention. Um, I think over the course of the 19th century too, we're talking about a fundamental shift in the relationship between medicine and power. Uh, in a sense, as I've suggested earlier, medicine was pretty much decentralized. Um, it might have to do with a certain amount of local social status, but mostly in the courts rather than the countryside. However, in the course of the 19th century, medicine and public health become very much associated with power. The power of the government to impose certain kinds of measures, to impose quarantines, etc., to impose vaccination. Uh, and likewise, as I've always suggested to you, medicine becomes more prestigious. You know, there's a kind of power involved in being the patron of a hospital or dispensary or something of that sort. So I think that that equation between medicine and power is one of the things which one would see emerging over the course of the 19th century. And of course, it's true not just in relation to Western biomedicine, but also of the indigenous systems themselves, that Ayurveda, the predominantly Hindu system, becomes much more confident in the course of the 19th century of its own special merits and its own special practitioners in a way which partly feeds off the assertiveness of Western medicine. Now, Western medicine claim all these things. Why shouldn't Ayurveda claim also to be uh, an important medical system, one with more ancient roots in India, one which is more sympathetic to issues of religion and caste and identity and so on. So again, a kind of power is being attached to the way in which medicine is practiced and the way which is thought about. Some of the community-based practitioners who Professor Arnold mentioned were also listed in the 1883 paper by Sakharam Arjun, which we just heard about at the beginning of this episode. Thus, for a large number of Indians, biomedical hospitals and doctors were hardly ever the mainstay of medical care, a state of affairs which was especially pronounced in the vast rural landscape of the country. When I posed this question to historian Nandini Bhattacharya, the question about how um, somebody who was born in 1810 would have experienced healthcare, Bhattacharya is professor at University of Houston in the US, and she emphasized the growing presence of hospitals and biomedical care in the later part of the 1800s. She had this to say. This is precisely the century when hospitals and dispensaries were opened and because the British government from 1858 onwards when they decided to popularize Western medicine. Not, not before that but after 1858 there was a distinct trend to popularize and the decision was also made not to popularize it through government aid so much as through what they called charitable subscriptions. So they saw that there was a great deal of charity available from Indian sources, from Indian uh, lo local sources, uh, from local um, um, influential and wealthy people, such as um, all the local states and the zamindars and so on. 
but uh, they knew that this these charities were geared towards community and religious institutions so the the attempt was to gear as much of it as possible to building hospitals and to have them support hospitals the government did build hospitals in district headquarters and these were also open to the public and at first they were free and the medicines dispensed in these were free as well for the poor but these never really became too popular i mean if you ask by caste for instance i mean uh, i uh, i mean samiksha shera what i don't know if you know of her work she's written on hospitals and gender in india and and she, uh, she would be able to speak much more uh, authoritatively about it but uh, it's that lower caste people did go to hospitals women did as well and obviously if they were of lower caste they didn't have a parda to maintain and if the women of these castes also worked you know in in the cities particularly they would work they would work as vendors they would work as cleaners they would work as uh, you know as uh, maid servants and so on as prostitutes so they didn't have much they didn't have the you know they were not in parda so there was no question of them not wanting to go to hospitals if they thought that it would be efficacious now where the hospitals efficacious the first thing they would try would be the first thing they would try would be naturally their home remedies and then they would uh, probably try the spice seller in the bazaar who would have a few uh, spices which they would think would be more potent and not av- available in the kitchens and only if they didn't work and only if they felt very ill they would go to the hospitals for a very long time hospitals were places where people went to die not to get better they thought of these places as places where you go to die not necessarily to get better um there were the changes we would see you know in disease terms would be the repeated um, epidemics of cholera that spread through all over northern india parts of southern india as well they spread through the railways they spread because of the pilgrimages pilgrimages of course became much more general whereas you would normally go to the local pilgrimage in the local heart you know everybody was going the kumbh mela became bigger and bigger in the 19th century because of the railways even even in bengal the that mela uh, ganga sagar mela it was a small local event and through the through the railways and through transport and um, uh, through just communication technologies they became much more accessible they make, they became desirable uh, you would have you know you would have in middle class families you would have people sent there in bengal you would have people sent uh, their unwanted women young widows to banaras that was only possible in the 19th century you read any book of sarath chandra you know they are populated with a lot large number of characters and at some point he sent just sends them away to kashi <laughs> if he can't especially the women because that's all and there were women you know in large numbers who were widowed and young of upper caste and sent away to kashi but other people as well they went to die uh, there's a saying in gujarat for instance in surat particularly um, uh, surat no jaman ne kashi no maran which means that surat is very famous for its food and so it says if you want to eat you have to eat in surat and if you want to die you have to die in kashi because obviously your soul goes straight to heaven if you die in kashi but people didn't travel to kashi that was very very unusual it's only after the railways that they could do that so disease has spread along these routes uh, 
unfortunately the medicines that were available in the hospitals you know there was some sanitary care provided but the medicines that were available in the hospitals were as efficacious or not as efficacious was the same that was available in the market outside it the main epidemics were you know apart from cholera which caused instant death almost instant 24 hours 48 hours and then death it, it so there's very little role for medicines the malaria and quinine did much better and where the pies packets of quinine were distributed by government in post offices everywhere i think this popularized medicine and going to hospitals much more and they were also efficacious although of course there was a lot of fraud a lot of it was pilfered a lot of it was um, you know adulterated all of that but now nonetheless quinine i think despite those little packets of quinine available in not just from hospitals but from every post office for one pies i think they created a real difference towards the end professor bhattacharya alluded to what was a highly sophisticated distribution mechanism for access to medicines in the late 1800s and early 1900s the medicine in question was quinine which is effective against malaria and the pice packet system that professor bhattacharya mentioned involved the marketing and sale of a small packet of quinine for one pice in post offices and similar government outlets one pice or paisa was one fourth amount of an anna and an anna was one sixteenth of a rupee in other words there was a time when the people of india could go buy an important drug for a highly prevalent ailment at their local post office and at a relatively affordable price with time quinine began to be sold in small shops and local grocery or kirana stores a glimpse of this vast and deeply penetrated distribution network is evident in the 1936 film achhut kanya there is a scene in which we see a village kirana wala advising and providing quinine or quinine as he calls it to a customer आज तुम्हारा बेटा कैसा है अजी बुखार तो अब नहीं है पर कमजोरी बहुत है भाई ये मलेरिया है दिल लेता उसे क्विनाइन तो रोज दे रहे हो ना मलेरिया के लिए क्विनाइन से बढ़कर और कोई दवा नहीं लो ये खुराक और लो जाके दे दो नाउ गोइंग बैक टू द मेन क्वेश्चन आई पुट टू हिस्टोरियंस let's hear what projit mukherjee had to say mukherjee is currently a visiting professor at ashoka university in india i would say again there would be a lot of variation geographically and uh, and in terms of social demographics as well who you are caste uh, class your uh, this thing uh, gender but i think there are some general things we can still say and that would be that by say 18 after once we are into the 19th century there are definitely new medicinal substances that are available that are becoming accessible even things like i've seen people talking about tea as a medicinal thing so people drinking tea but there are also uh, i've seen bengali uh, texts which are talking about using 
British made or English made uh, the patent medicines as an in- ingredient. So things like Holloway's pills and things, they bec- uh, become quite popular. But a whole range of other things like, say, barley starts being used as a recuperative food. Uh, so lots of new uh, medicines with the small end, like not really a medical system, but like ingredients, items which can have therapeutic effect, those are entering the repertoire of physicians. Uh, not necessarily new doctors uh, or new types of doctors even, but there are increasingly more things that you can use because of, and they're not all coming from Britain either, but because of colonization, we are also being embedded into a new kind of global uh, connectivity where these things are moving and these things are uh, cropping up. Uh, there is, for instance, a, a, a fascinating man called Pran Krishna Bishash in Bengal, uh, who is who is not a medical man. He works as a kind of a, um, a an agent of the English um, to set up their administration because they need people who know local languages. So he knows Farsi, he knows uh, Sanskrit, he knows Bengali. He's a very devout man, lower lower caste, but not so low in terms of class. Uh, He works for his whole life in the English East India Company, gets posted everywhere in like Eastern India. And then he writes a book, which is, which has a praise to all kinds of Vaishnav deities and stuff. But then in that, he accumulates all the remedies he's learned everywhere. So they can include everything from like some magical spell he learned to cure a headache to like using tea to uh, cure indigestion. So they're both like practical remedies as well as this kind of magical things. And he makes no distinction. It's just like, I have traveled a lot. I have learned a lot of good remedies. And so I'm making a book out of this. And then people would come to him and he's a devout man. He's a learned man. So people trust him. And there is, in in their mind, there's no kind of absolute division either between different traditions. Oh, this is an Ayurvedic remedy. This is a Yunani remedy. That is a Western remedy. Neither is there a distinction between this is medical and this is magical. It's all like, if it works, I'll use it. There is a, there is a, uh, this thing. Even when we start getting from the 1820s, 30s, we get like big cholera outbreaks, for instance, when the colonial state has to respond in some ways. What they do is they don't have enough manpower, medical manpower to do anything. So they recruit local, uh, vaids or hakims or whatever is available. They give them a monthly stipend, give them a temporary contract saying, go into this district and cure whatever, whatever you can. And so people are using all kinds of remedies. So I think what starts happening in the first half of the 19th century, at least, is that you get new remedies, but you don't get new systems of medicine or you don't get new types of doctors. That begins by around 1860s, 70s. By 1860s, 70s, what happens is that Two things. I think one, the medical schools and colleges that are set up, they introduce in the 1840s and 50s, they start introducing vernacular classes where people are taught in Bengali and Hindustani and Urdu, later on in other languages as well, once more medical schools and colleges open. Uh, Those people then become the kind of um, 
transmitters of a certain Western style of medicine. What medicine they actually practiced is still a big <laughs> this thing. But what they can do at least is that they take on a new kind of social identity as being doctors. So you start recognizing that this guy is not a vaid, he's a doctor. He might actually, the prescription might still be very similar. His thinking might be similar, but he'll have some like often being doctors. I've seen like, for instance, I have read a lot of Bengali uh, farces, Bengali theater from the late 19th century, comic theater, where there would be a uh, a doctor figure and he's basically made fun of because he's so English that he always wants to talk like the English. He wants to wear trousers like the English where everybody else is wearing a dhoti. So, so it becomes this, but even if you don't take those jokes seriously, what is clear is that being a doctor socially is visible because of this anglophilia to some extent, the way you talk, the way you comport yourself. Uh, and these are people who are not what kind of medicine they're doing, we still don't know entirely. There's some kind of Western medicine, but this is where a, a, a divide between systems begins to appear. That there's something called doctory medicine and there's something called something else. Like that can be whatever Ayurveda or whatever. Um, and the other thing that happens from the 1860s and 70s is vernacular publishing, at least in the presidency languages like you know Bengali, Marathi, Tamil, uh, to a lesser extent, Malayalam, not so much Hindi, but that these three, four languages, they start producing newspapers, they start producing books, and the books are not just like high-end books. There's a lot of lower-end books. The presidency towns also means that a lot of people are uh, being, a lot of Indian people are being incorporated into um into uh, administration. And, you know, this is another thing I learned in one of my classes in JNU that I've always uh, remembered that we had a professor who's still in JNU, Indivar Kamtekar. He used to teach a course on the colonial state. And the first day he would ask us, how many white people do you think there were in India, even in 1940, when the power was at its highest. And I f forget what the exact number was, but it was something very small, like 140,000 or something in all of undivided India from like Afghanistan to Burma. And the point Indivar made through that is that what you have to recognize is that Indian colonialism is not like colonialism in Canada or the US or in Australia. It is a highly collaborative colonialism. It's the, You have the white guy on the top but then various sections of society, Indian society have been incorporated into it. So one major part of that are people who are working in these clerical jobs. And like, you know, they are literate. They are the people who make the whole, everybody from a little Daroga to a peon in a government hospital, uh, everybody has some literacy and they are reading. And so there's a print market now that is catering to their appetite. And this, I think, is a massive change. This is where we start getting new types of people start actually thinking about health differently because they're now reading these books. They're not necessarily deferring to traditional physicians. That could be an Ayurveda. That could be a guy at a mandir or a uh, darga who gives out medicines. They're not necessarily going there. They're just going, they're seeing adver advertisements in newspapers and getting uh, medicines. They're reading books, little pamphlets while they're taking a train from maybe Pune to Bombay 
to work and then on the train they're reading something. So that is how I think that that's a major shift that starts happening. You start getting these mass-produced drugs that are being advertised, that are being consumed by people because they have access through the postal system, through the railways. They can now just, you can send in, you know, you can send the money in a postcard and then you will get the medicine and then you can have that. And that medicine might be nothing, but like it's radically different from what happened before, where you would always need some kind of a person mediating the patient's contact with the medicine. Uh, and the one last thing I will say that also changes, which uh, is these little technologies, particularly thermometers. Once you start getting thermometers, I've seen, see, fever in many ways is the king of all diseases. Because in if you look at medieval or early modern Sanskrit works on medicine, the first chapter is always on jwara, fever. Because so many things that we would today categorize as different diseases are categorized as fever. So fever is a very important thing. And if you look at, I looked at letters. So there's a very good archive in Shantiniketan in Vishwabharati University has an archive of old letters that they had managed to collect from the 18th century, Bengali letters, just mundane, everyday things, people talking, somebody, father writing to son who's away or daughter writing to their mother, something, something. And you get a lot of like everyday details. And of course, you know, when you give, when you send letters and you tell, talk about your family, illness often comes up. My son got ill, now he's better. You know, my nephew's um, like wife fell ill. Something, so there's a lot of illness reports and fever comes up. Nobody ever naturally mentions temperature in it. So they don't even say that it's hot. They're like, they've got fever, so they were babbling. Often the thing that they will say is that the fever was so high that they started saying nonsense. So they started babbling. By the end of the 19th century, if you see memoirs where people are writing about family illnesses, it is always the fever became 103, 104. And then we realized that it was really serious. So the way we talk about fever completely changes. That it becomes, temperature becomes the main way that we talk of fever. And that happens by around 1890s. I mean, there are, for instance, Tagore in his letters he he lost a grandchild um, and he cared for the grandchild himself in the last days of the child. And he's left extensive memoirs. He's constantly noting down the temperature, writing to family members that today his temperature has gone up, his temperature has fallen. It's all about temperature. It's not any longer about whether the kid is babbling or not. So I think those are the major things. I would say that after 1856, uh, or 1860s, 70s, there are some major shifts. But the first half of the 19th century, it's more just new medical substances, but not much else changes. There are many fascinating details in this overview of 19th century healthcare, which Professor Mukherjee provided. But there is one particular theme which I want to emphasize. I will admit that I was fascinated by the little things, the little changes and moments and details and concepts, the expansion of the railways and people's desire to embark on longer pilgrimages, for example, as we heard Professor Bhattacharya talk about, or the way people shifted from talking about fever using words and emotions to using charts and numbers, as we just heard. 
it is these apparently small but tremendously meaningful things which i found most striking these are the kinds of things which provide a strongly human element to history when i was in medical college many years back my idea of the history of medicine was almost completely confined to details regarding the classical practitioners like charaka and hippocrates or the big inventions and discoveries in the modern period like anesthesia antibiotics and cardiac surgery but in more recent years as i have come to actually read history written by professional historians i have begun to appreciate just how much more there is to history than the simplistic broad generalizations which i had been used to for many many years that has been a wonderful revelation for me and i hope that this podcast and the historians who are speaking to you through the podcast bring to you a similar revelation also of course focusing on the apparently smaller details does not mean that we neglect larger trends and broader dynamics in history in fact in the upcoming episodes of this podcast we will discuss some of the major trends in healthcare and medicine in india in the 19th century but at the same time what i wish to convey is that even when we talk about such broader dynamics it is important to ensure that the little things and the human and community aspects of history are not pushed out of sight Thank you very much for listening to episode 3 of Becoming Modern Healthcare and History in India. Today we have a special parting note. Since we are anyway on the theme of little things, I would like to leave you with a little exchange from the 1975 movie Shole. Here, the writers Salim Javed in their trademark style deftly shows that for many people in india even after independence it was not doctors but local community based practitioners who were the first line and frontline providers of care and advice when it came to health thank you again and we will be back soon with episode 4 le aur le kha kha ke ghodi ho gayi hai lekin yahan se belapur jana ho तो नखरे देखो इनके खाए जाओ बकर बकर ओ बसंती मौसी मैं यहाँ हूँ इस गधैया के पास लो अब इनकी झिकझिक सुनो अरे वो छोकरिया दिन भर हवा हवाई घूमती हो मगर मैं कोई काम बोलूँ तो जू नहीं रेंगती कान पर लो और सुनो अरे मौसी तुम तो बस हुक्का पानी लेकर चढ़ जाती हो सुनती तो हो नहीं कौन सा काम कहा था तुमने भाई जी के पास जाने का ना तो मैं गई थी तुम्हारी दवा लाने के लिए वैद्य जी के पास अब वो थे नहीं तो मैं क्या करूं? करूँसी कह रहे थे कि वो बहुत बीमार हैं और दूसरे गांव गए हैं दवा दारू लाने के लिए ओहो मैंने तो बैद का नाम भी नहीं लिया और तूने पूरी कथा सुना दी तो फिर फिर कौन सा गाँव कहा था कच्चे आम लाने को नहीं कहा था आचार के लिए पर तुझे याद रहे तब न कच्चे आम हाँ कहा तो था अभी लाती हूँ इमाम साहब मैं आपको छोड़ दू कौन बसंती हाँ। आज तू है कितने बरस हो गए मुझे इस गांव में तू तो पैदा भी नहीं हुई थी 
लेकिन आज तक मस्जिद की सीढ़ियां मैं बाद में उतरता हूँ कोई ना कोई सहारा पहले दे देता है Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android app. Download it now from Google Play Store.